I'm not a complicated man. I like cinema. In particular, I like to see people fucking on film. But I don't want to win an Oscar, and I don't want to reinvent a wheel. I like simple pleasures, like butter in my ass, lollipops in my mouth. That's just me. That's just something that I enjoy. Call me crazy, call me a pervert. But there's one little thing that I want to do in this life, and that is I want to make a dollar and a cent in this business. Jack, I'm not trying to hurt you. I'm trying to help you stay one step ahead of the game. We're going in circles now. We're in familiar territory. The territory we in is the future. Not to mention the cost. You know, if it looks like shit, and it sounds like shit, then it must be shit. Welcome to Pivotal Film. I'm Tom Nolan. And I'm Mario Ponzio. And this is episode 40. 40. You have just to look that up. This is a big one. Yeah, it's a big one, but the numbers melt together. I feel like we've done 40 before, though. But I've also felt like I've said that before about other numbers. Yeah, I feel like we're just repeating ourselves at this point. You know, we get to like 70 episodes, and what much is there to say? (laughs) However, what there is to say is there was an article today in The Guardian, and apparently cats... Has a budget of 230 million pounds or 300 million dollars. Sure, like with all told, like yeah. with marketing and. I don't know if it's marketing. I don't know if that's including marketing. That Listen, if be... you're going to spend 300 million dollars on a cat movie, you can't make cat tails just shoot out of the cat humans' butts. That's my one rule with the cats. Even my kids saw like the preview for Cats, and they were just like, "That looked weird." Like the specific scene where that girl is dancing and the cattail is just shooting straight out of her ass. It's, it's no good. That's no good. For $300 million, you should be able to fix that problem. But at the same time, you got to like wonder. Like you, you think it's going to be like a, a abysmal failure in terms of that. But yes. the greatest showman shows us that sometimes things are, are not that way. I don't know. And I know greatest showman made money, but I still think it's a failure. Financially, it wasn't. No. But also, bouncing back from Lucy in the Sky, Noah Hawley is uh, writing and directing the next Star Trek movie. Oh, I thought they had given up on Star Trek. Like, they did. And then they were like, oh, I guess not. And uh, like, then it, they gave up on it again. And now they're, they're back. Is this Chris Pine? Yeah, it's still going to be. It's supposed to be Chris Pine. So they're not, like, they're not redoing. Zoe Saldana and all that. Who's going to take over the checkoff? Uh, the check, checkoff is getting written off. Is that true? That's been. That, they've said that. They're not going to recast Chekhov. He's just too... Anton Yelik is just too pivotal to the production. I mean, I like to miss Chekhov. They kept making Troll Hunters. All right. Emil Hirsch. He had filmed most of his voice-like stuff, right? Well, they did like four seasons, so Emil Hirsch stepped in... As Anton Yelchin? As Anton Yelchin's character, like after he died. Oh, okay. So... Yeah, that is. So, uh, Did you see really, that movie yet? I haven't seen. It never came out, or it came out here for a week. Love, Aunt, love, Aunt Natasha. Mm-hmm. Um, probably out on video. I don't know. I, I check know. every like day for new things, and I haven't. Well, Farewell it. came out finally, right? Farewell's been out for a while. Yeah, we still haven't still haven't looked at that yet. Yet. No, I'm saving it. I'm hoping it's going to be like the Sisters Brothers, where it like we get that big old one I've, episode I've, again. I've, like we did. Uh, I forget last about week. it. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, I forget about it, and then I look at it, and like, oh, damn it, that should have been on my list. Let's see here. I, I haven't heard anything about a video release. These, these video releases are getting getting odd. Maybe it's know? going straight to Apple Plus. Yeah. Is that, well, is no, that Apple TV? Apple TV. That it doesn't say anything. I had to listen to a podcast today about how apparently Apple TV's movie, they bought a movie called The Banker, starring Anthony Mackie oh, and Samuel yeah, yeah. Jackson, and that how it might be an Oscar movie. And I was like, well, then I will have to. <laughs> I will have to chew through my flesh on my arms if that's the case. I am not doing that. Oh, if, if Apple suddenly now has Oscar movies? Yep. I'm, I'm not doing it. it Apple TV is going to last like a year and a half, and then it will implode. As, re, as we've said several times, either on this podcast or off this podcast, that the Dickinson show speaks volumes about the depth of quality well, of content. You can't get Apple, Apple TV, TV unless you have an Apple TV, right? Like, I can't get it on I my know. Roku, right? I don't, uh, who cares? Yeah, who cares? Speaking of who cares. Um. <laughs> we continue. I continue, at least, because Tom has side beers. Um, you gave I, me one. I did. You, I, you just put it in front of me, and it's got I an gave awesome you a title. Side beer. <laughs> That's true. That's uh, true. But you, you could review that beer whenever you open it because it is within the yeah. driving distance range. Um, but I said side beers because our good friend silently JP is, is sitting here with us. If you hear some mumbling and anger, it's probably JP. Silent JP. Silent JP. Yeah. Um, he's sitting there reading his Coen Brothers book. Spoilers for. Did you yeah. ever see that book? No, I never. It's a great book. It. Look at it later. It's a great book. Uh, but I, at the very least, I'm gonna drink it. Continue my sojourn, um, of athletic brewing, 0.5 percent and less non-alcoholic beers. Yep. Once again, you make it more drunk off of a burger bun than you do off athletic brewing. This one is a big calorie bomb. 50 calories a pint, or not pint? This is a 12 ounce. 50 calories a 12 ounce. Hmm. I think maybe you burn more calories drinking this than you do consuming it. Maybe if you shotgunned it, yeah. What? And you're like, your throat was really working. I don't know, I've had a sore throat down. for like two weeks. Because of shotgunning athletic beer? Yeah. <laughs> it's a problem. It's too much. I've just been like, I need, I need to try to get drunk somehow. So what is this? This is, uh, this is their Golden Upside Dawn. Upside Dawn. Which I'm not a fan of that name. That name's... I think the kid, you know what? I'll give these people a lot of credit for their art. Like, this is a very classy-looking can. Well, this tastes like a light beer. This tastes like a, like a Bud Light so far. Well, yeah, it does taste like a Bud Light. Ah, a little more of a flavor, like, pleasant flavor profile. It's just got, like, a, a little hint of maltiness. And then mostly just water. There's a... This there is, is a hit. There is like a hit of something, like a like a like a hoppy something there, right in the right in the middle. What's weird is it doesn't taste as much as a golden ale as it does like a session IPA. Yeah, it tastes like a session it IPA. It does. JP, try it. Try that out. It does taste like a session oh, IPA. He just looked. He just looked. He just like, grabbed it and put it down. <laughs> you think I'm gonna barf? <laughs> <clears throat> It's not, I mean, it's yeah. actually pretty good. I yeah. actually like this one. This one tastes more like a beer than the brown ale last week. You know what this would be perfect? Like, drinking games. Like, yeah. Kickball. Fruit with my kids. Right? That's what you meant to say? Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> or anybody's kids. <laughs> Get a kid. 
can a kid legally drink this? Oh man, that's it. You you start talking about the movie. This episode is this episode is deteriorating. Now we're trying to get how how many beers can I give my kid before it gets drunk? Um, speaking of kids and getting drunk, uh, we both watched an animated Christmas movie this week. It is uh, new on Netflix. It is called. Klaus. It's not illegal. You can give your children non-alcoholic beer. However, they say you probably shouldn't. Yeah, okay. Well, that wait, this might not be America. Is it Belgium? No, it's, it's like Japan. Oh, okay. So on that note, uh, Klaus. Um, hello? <laughs> Jesper Johansson, postman. Oh, uh, Mr. Klaus, you have a gift. You were meant for making toys. So I figured if you donate your old toys, I'll deliver them for free. Tonight, I go with you. There's no need for you to come with me, really. Tonight, then. (gasps) Our cousin told us if we write a letter to Mr. Klaus, he'll make us Dear Mr. Klaus. Dear Mr. Klaus. Shall we then? Yep. (gasps) Mr. Klaus is the coolest. Klaus? What about me? Ow! What the? Loser! Oh yeah? Well, if I'm a loser, then you're you're a... You're too too far. You're gone. You're a loser. Right? No. Mm -hmm. Uh, Jesper, voiced by Jason Schwartzman. Who at times sounds like Ryan Reynolds, and then at other times sounds like um, Jay Burchell in this film. Oh, yeah. He does sound a lot like Jay Burchell in this yeah. movie. Like, especially when he's just he kind never of sounds he's like, talking and talking and talking and talking. He and talking never about. sounds like Jason Schwartzman. Well, when he slows down a little bit and is allowed to do a little bit of acting, he sounds a little bit like Jason Schwartzman. He's the son of the postmaster general of an oddly shaped continent somewhere. Supposed to be like a weird Sweden, I guess, or Denmark. He uh, doesn't want to work. He wants to have everything handed to him because his like dad has so much cappuccinos money. and cookies. So his dad banishes him to Smears, Smearsburg, Smearsburg, um, which uh, doesn't want a postman. They are involved there. in their own little Hatfield and McCoys sort of feud. Yeah, which we'll talk about, I guess. Although I don't want, really want to spend that much time <laughs> talking about this movie. Um, his dad s- sets him a goal: if he can, if he can post six thousand letters, then he can uh, uh, come back, and he won't be cut off from like the family's postmaster general money that they have. Yeah, I didn't. Um, is postmaster generalship, like uh, highly lucrative. We're taught. We're thinking in, too much. We're thinking too much. Denmark. I actually think this is like a sequel or something to the laundromat. It's like one of those side stories that didn't get in the movie, but they... Just Panama Papers thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> there was, it was, uh, this actually was directed by Steven Soderbergh, and you know the animated segment was really long. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's like, you have to cut this Christmas story out. Oh, damn it. Um, who directed it? I don't, I don't have my thing uh, in front of me. Sergio Plabos and Carlos Martinez Lopez. Uh, Sergio mm-hmm. Plabos having directed... Uh, I think... Did he do... Despicable Me. He like created the story. Oh yeah, for yeah, yeah. One of me. they, one of them was involved in Despicable Me. I don't know if he's directed anything. Um, Jesper, 
trying to convince people to mail stuff, finds his way up to the woodsman's cabin. Guess what? That woodsman's huge. He's got a big white beard, and he makes toys. And he hates Spider-Man. He doesn't like Spider-Man? How do you know that? It's J.K. Simmons. It's a bad joke. Oh. You know what's funny is that I didn't realize it was J.K. Simmons. I just assumed it was John Goodman for most of the movie. (laughs) And then I looked it up, and I was like, J.K. Simmons? Yeah, it doesn't... Why is he talking like John Goodman the whole time? (laughs) Gotta make himself big. Um, Rashida Jones is also in this movie as the teacher slash fish butcher. Fishmonger. Fish butcher. What did I say? I said fish butcher. No, he said fish butcher. But well, he actually was like fish butcher. Fish butcher. Which in, in Danish might be correct. Um, but she doesn't seem to sell the fish. She just cuts everything up into like huge fillets. I mean, she does a great job of it. What's that about? Yeah, she just cuts through. Like her knives are very sharp. She eats bones really quickly and just slices that up. One thing leads to another, and Jesper convinces all the town children to write letters to Klaus. And if he does, they will give them a present in the middle of the night, sneaking down their chimneys, and then eating cookies that just are randomly left out, and then filling socks that are drying by the fire, as one traditionally does dry their socks. Um, that's how we do it up here in the Pivotal Film Studios. Um, I've been meaning to talk to you about that. You need to stop that. <laughs> they just get them so toasty. There's there's no fireplace in the Pivotal Film Studio. So You're just putting them on the floor. But the, the radiator heat is so nice. Yeah, okay. I'm done with the joke. <laughs> um, but yeah, the the villains voiced, I don't even know their names, voiced by Will Sasso and Joan Cusack. It's the Crumb and the Ellen Bows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they don't want Klaus to... It's just Will Sasso and Joan Cusack playing Will Sasso. And Joan, Joan Cusack, Cusack does not even try to do an old crone's voice. <laughs> no, it's just Joan Cusack. Yeah, it's very jarring. Um... Because now there's no feud, and everyone's everyone's done with the feud. The toys have brought everyone together, except for Jesper this said tiny kids, group of like, people. They've, they've, he's kind of like led this story of Klaus and said, if you know, if you do well, you'll get the presents. Yeah. Um, but then they try to stop him, but then they don't stop him, and then Jesper, Jesper's true motives are found out, and nobody likes it, and then he comes back, and then they're happy with him, and then he gets married. To the teacher and Klaus disappears. Klaus disappears, and but then he comes back every every Christmas because just be a good idea. Um, Norm Macdonald's in this. I liked him a lot. He is in this. Um, this movie's fine. It's not like the yeah. worst movie ever. No, it's 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 ultimately like fine and serviceable. The animations um, are very good. Yeah, the animation's amazing in this. I mean, I don't want to say amazing, but it's it's striking. Yeah, the 2D stuff is very sharp. Um, it looks cool. This is, they are. There's a real depth to it. They're using it kind of like a three dimensionality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and and there's some typical like ideas in terms of the animation that are very general story conceits, like starting out the film, every, everything being really gray, and mm-hmm. you know gradually improving the color gradient. Like the part where he first enters Klaus's house like it's extremely dark and mm-hmm. everything and it, things are slowly improving like whatever that, that looks good like like from yeah. a visual standpoint it works but uh, narratively it's just really um wrote it's like so I don't know why there needed to be I actually kind of was hoping going in that it wasn't going to be a Santa Claus origin story but then of course it was a Santa Claus origin story where are you hoping it was an origin story for 
Nothing. I just there's you know, like Jack Frost. Last year, the, the the serial killer Jack Frost. Yeah, like the man who got transformed into the body of a snowman and kills Shannon Elizabeth. Mm-hmm. Yep. That would have been good. Imagine that. That would have been good. Yeah. Like J.K. Simmons just became a killer. If he was just there the have whole time. Have you seen the Jack me. Frost movies? Um, the Michael Keaton ones or no. the ones you're talking about? There's no, I have of, not. There's only one Michael Keaton. I don't think that got a sequel. I'd hope not. I bet it did get a sequel. Oh, boy. No, no the, maybe it's it like a serial killer Jack Frost movies. Hmm. The first one's pretty pretty typically bad. The second one is, is kind of like batshit crazy. It's worth a watch. Um, it's movie. I was hoping that this movie would be... So last year I read like a list of like Christmas movies because we were just out of fucking Christmas movies to watch. And I kept seeing this movie, Arthur. Have you seen this movie, Arthur Christmas? Um, I've heard of it. I never it's an Ard, um, who, Ardman. Ardman Studios movie, and it has like James McAvoy and Hugh Laurie and Bill Nighy and Jim Broadbent and Milda Staunton. Um, and it's pretty good. Uh, it kind of subverts some of the, the standard issue tropes of Christmas. Like Santa has a family, and there's like competition for the job of Santa, and like. You know, it's um, Elf kind of, remember John Favreau's Elf, it kind of teased like Santa using technology a little bit, but this one kind of goes all into like the idea of a modern Santa and it's kind of more about modernity versus like tradition. Um, and I was hoping this was movie was going to be more like that and be something a little different and it's just... No, it's it's really paid by numbers. Um, How am I going to get in? Hmm? Oh, the chimney, what? I don't see really who this movie would appeal to except really young children. My kids were indifferent to it. Yeah, because I think they've been exposed to other Christmas films yeah. that are doing things maybe similarly or um, but with a little more creativity. And outside of the visual style and Jason Schwartzman trying, actually trying to act, you know, and, mm-hmm. and Norm MacDonald being... Just, just good to hear Norm Macdonald's voice. Yeah, he seems like he's having fun. Yeah, um, this isn't doing anything new. Any, anything. It's, it's, it's no, no, no. It More has special. a really forced um, kind of like narrative backstory for Klaus's kind of want to give children toys, um, which is unnecessary. Well, uh, just like his wife died, and then there's that weird native peoples that no, live the, in the, tents, and yeah. then they come and. Are elves? Do yeah. they shrink later? Like that's the thing. They're gonna... and that's the thing. They kind of like throw all the traditions in like throwaway lines. That's like, oh yeah, we get it. Yeah, but they've cold. also like they have all these traditions, but then they're just like non-traditional things, like like the elves, elves not being elves, and his name is Klaus, not Claus, but he is Santa Claus. So what the hell are we supposed to do? <laughs> like, what are we supposed to do with that? He could have also, Klaus could have been murdered by yeah. the Santa Claus who took it over. It's possible. The, I want to see that movie. By the Kurt Russell character that was in last year's Netflix uh, I movie. I think they're making a sequel to that. So. Oh my god. That movie was terrible. We watched that last year also. But yeah. All right. I mean, the thing that's frustrating is, well, I was just looked down and I saw Believe It to be an alien spacecraft and I got really confused because I thought I was on the Klaus thing. And I realized I'm on Arthur Christmas, and oh, oh, oh. That makes more sense. Um, I was like, I don't, <laughs> I didn't. Maybe I didn't watch. Maybe I accidentally watched Noel. Um, no, 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 you didn't. But that's the issue. Is is uh, do we have to keep making this movie over 
no. over again. I mean, I think there's a lot to tap into with Christmas, even like something like Jingle All the Way. Or as terrible as that movie is supposed to be. You know what's funny? I like Sinbad in movies. I'm pro Sinbad the actor. I don't like House Guest. No, I don't like House Guest, but I liked First Kid. Remember First oh, I Kid? Do. I liked First Kid as a kid. I, I never. Yeah, me too. I keep movies like that away from reviewing, just like rewatching, just because I don't want to ruin it. Yeah. Um, That's why I haven't no, rewatched but, Angels in the like, Things like that at least are trying to do something different. Mm-hmm. Movies like Klaus or even like Noel or whatnot um, are just doing nothing. No. They're just doing nothing. And, and like at least <clears throat> the, the merit of this is, is the art style is innovative. Um, but why would you not use it to yeah, make something so bland? bland. And, yeah. Mm, I don't know. It's, it's a really striking art style that, that kind of like deceives you into believing you're watching a movie that is greater than it is. And I, this, I mean, no, no, this movie's getting like solid Rotten Tomato reviews. And like, but some people are like saying like, oh, it could be like the fifth spoiler in the like best animated feature category. And it's like, why? No, it won't be. But why? Why? No, it won't be. And even if it was, who gives a shit? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Boss Baby was also nominated for yeah, best yeah. animated feature. I think feature. Storks was nominated also for best. Bolt was nominated for best animated feature. I think did Bolt win i don't know man i feel like we God. talk about bolt a lot because <laughs> no, i don't terrible. think it's ever re- i don't think i've ever talked about it on the podcast no we oh maybe yeah maybe we haven't no i think we have i think i've mentioned I've oh made yeah fun it of was bolt just before. nominated it didn't win um sorry travolta yeah who gives it who cares but like other movies nominated it's either going to be toy story 4 or frozen abominable 2. i will not be abominable <laughs> obama another movie that looks good but is just telling a dumb story yeah it's like Kids are smarter than this. Missing Link looks amazing, telling a dumb story. But that's the thing. Kids are smarter than this. And, and like you said, you, you have young kids. Like, well, one's getting one's They're like young. 10-ish, right? Um, one of them used metaphorically really, like, completely properly today. So maybe they're not young anymore. I don't know. Well, you're, you're just getting old. I'm gonna, I'll give them some of these, and they won't be young anymore. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> um, but they... Give them something better. Yeah, I mean that's the. I think the thing that people forget about like the Pixar movies because they're animated and stuff like that is that like a lot of them are dark and a lot of them are really heavy, and a lot of them have real jokes that they would do in like adult movies. Um, and they get or it. Some of the art and they, movies or some of the um, yeah, yeah yeah or some of the uh, the the Laka movies. Um, Laka 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 movies. Yeah. you know, like they they are at least doing something that's still. Quasi for children or whatnot, but they're they're better. There's a depth. To yeah, them. or but, even something like the Walt Disney kind of like like the Walt Disney even computer movies, like even something like even I don't like it. Frozen. Yeah, I mean least, Frozen was terrible, but I, I get it. I yeah. get why like a kid would feel like it's like a significant. Place and I respect to be. like the importance of like the empowering sort of message in that. Like Frozen are like tangled. I I respect the fact that yeah. they're at least inter- starting to introduce kind of complex non-traditional ideas mm-hmm. um, like in a, a ch- child's film. I dislike the fact that the songs in Frozen 1 are a rhythmic holocaust, but that's that's just between me and the songwriters. Um, Apparently they don't believe in time signatures, but we don't have to go there. But films like this just serve no point but the kind of clutter. It's just content, man. It's yeah. just content. Like this is, this is telltale films that Netflix is doing just to... 
Get that, kids that watching. And then you could just put a box next to it. It's like, well, watch this next. And then your kids will be zombies and they'll be like, okay, that will be good. And after they get done with that, they go right into 13 Reasons Why. No, they go right into the chef's table. <laughs> Which actually is a really good show for kids. Salt, fat, acid, and uh, the fourth one. Salt, sugar. Oh, yeah, 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 whatever that sugar, is. Sugar, whatever. I don't know. That was actually fun. I didn't see it. Either. That's a good thing. Watch that on Netflix instead. Yeah, yeah. Not Klaus. Watch cooking shows and abstract on Netflix. Great British cook-off or whatever. We watch British that all baking. Time. That's yeah. a good show. It's yeah, right. Netflix just become a baking channel. <laughs> it's it's two hundred and fifty million dollars for called, CC films. It's called Food Network. It's just Bobby Flay cooking meat and baking. No, Food Network now apparently has their own streaming thing. Yeah. Like, why? Food Network. No, but they're doing like a streaming service. That you have to pay for? Oh, Jesus Christ. All right, let's get the fuck out of here before this turns into an <laughs> anti-streaming conversation. Um, yeah, so we'll be back in 10 seconds with our uh, number 40s. 40. Welcome back. Uh, my number 40... Actually, I'll do a little preamble. A little preamble. So back like a million years ago, we did like um, in the 90s, talking in the 90s, we did 93, we did Fargo's and we did Goodfellas and then we did Citizen Kane. Um, those movies at the time, I kind of pitched them as the 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 cinematic masterpieces that like I that, that I connected with you know out of all the cinematic masterpieces that I was I had to see those are the ones that kind of like stuck with me um, and kind of set a foundation for the way that I would think about movies but there's a we're 40 to 33 33 33 yeah 40 to 33 um, are more personal the same type of thing but more personal to me more personal to more indicative of the things that i would really be obsessed with later in in life the things that are higher up on my list and the first one of those movies we're going to do today is from a director that i've already talked about twice one on episode zero and um another time in the 70s and that is paul thomas anderson and this is uh boogie nights it was a time when disco was king. These are the ones. These are great. Yeah, those are really cool. Are they lizard? No, they're Italian. Do you like my shoes? They're pretty cool. Sex was safe. Woohoo! <laughs> Pleasure was a business. Cut. Terrific. Nice work. And business was booming. And the award for best newcomer goes to Mr. Dirk Diggler. <laughs> Wow. Wow. Um, <clears throat> it's funny. There's been like a Boogie Nights kind of renaissance recently. Like everyone's writing essays about like new appreciations of Boogie Nights for some reason. I don't really know why. Um, I think we've finally accepted like Paul Thomas Anderson is like the zeitgeist of, of Paul Thomas Anderson. And so we're just kind of going through like everything because it was yeah, the, they tried to do like that and the like, master or like yeah. everyone's kind of like let's re-look at like a couple years movies. ago there was a lot of talk of like you haven't seen hard eight but you should yeah yeah um so i'm not sure what there is like to say anymore like about boogie nights so we'll just talk about a little bit about like how we came to it and how 
we are like processing it. So I saw Boogie Nights after, um, obviously after I saw Pulp Fiction, where I saw like Pulp Fiction was like, and we're going to talk about Pulp Fiction very soon, um, was one thing. And Boogie Nights seemed to be like, took that to a next, the next level. You know what I mean? And one of the things that like Paul Thomas Anderson always like says was an influence for Boogie Nights was Goodfellas. I feel like this is a better movie than Goodfellas. Like the things that Goodfellas, like people really praise Goodfellas for. I think this movie like does them, but on like way more cocaine. You know what I mean? And it's just, it's just amped to a million so much so that there's these like weird surrealist, like break the fourth wall type moments. Not like the fourth wall where they're talking to you, but where like, you know, after Dirk gets kind of famous and starts buying stuff, you know, he has, you know, he talks about how his shoes are, um, you know, he's like, Oh, is that lizard? He's like, no, it's Italian. Then he's, you know, they're on the, the dance floor. Um, and you know, everyone's dancing and he's talking to roller girl about his stuff. And then everyone just starts breaking into like a synchronized dance number. You know what I mean? And it just kind of happens. It's not like telegraphed and they're not saying like, this is a musical number. Um, or anything like that. It's just like a thing that happens. And there's this type of... I mean, obviously it's staged. It's planned that way. But in the flow of the movie, it just seems spontaneous. It's like a weird eruption. And that's one of the... I think that's like the perfect word to describe this movie. There's all these like just tremendously great eruptions of like emotion and like action and just terrible things. But also like mistakes that are in it because they don't know how to get him out. So like when Phil Baker Hall is talking to Jack, talking to Jack and, and we'll talk about the plot, I guess. I don't know who doesn't, who knows, doesn't know the plot of this movie. He's talking to Jack about like, you know, film versus video and stuff like that. And he's, you know, we, we heard it in the opening thing about like how I like butter a mask and lo- ass and lollipops in my mouth. And the Colonel's like sitting there behind him, like covering his face. And he's like laughing out loud. Like that actually happened. Like he wasn't supposed to laugh. He just thought it was so funny in the moment that he laughed and they left that shit in. Um, because that's just the kind of movie that it was. It was just like fucking on fire. And it was one of those movies. I don't have, I don't really have a lot of these, um, experiences. And one of the movies we're going to talk about, one of the new movies we're going to talk about today, like seeing it in theaters, I was kind of like, um, you know, I kind of sat up and I was like, yes, and the, like the person next to me, when a couple of good things happen, they like clap their hands and they're like, yes. And I felt like when I first saw Boogie Nights and it was on, uh, it was on DVD. I didn't see it in theaters. Um, it was just a rush. So when like certain things happen, you're just like, woo, like you just kind of like shout out loud, like, oh my God, like that's amazing. Um, so for the uninitiated of Boogie Nights, and I honestly don't know who you are, like at, <laughs> at this point, you're just someone I think that's too young to have seen Boogie Nights. Um, Mark Wahlberg plays Dirk Diggler, who uh, doesn't start off as Dirk Diggler, but changes his name to Dirk Diggler after he has a, a vision of it while sitting in a hot tub with with uh, John C. Riley and. Burt Reynolds, as we all do, we we were sitting in a hot tub with John Z. Riley and Burt Reynolds. We would have a, a, a neon light vision of our name. Also, um, he gets approached by uh, Jack Horner to make uh, adult films. Jack is played by Burt Reynolds. He's got a house filled with porn stars. Amber Waves, played by Julianne Moore. 
like a great mid '90s Julianne Moore performance where she was just like totally unhinged and you know you thought she really did like a lot of coke, just like how in Safe you really thought that she had like a, <laughs> a terrible disease that she was going to die from soon. Um, Roller Girl played by Heather Graham. Um, you know you got Don Cheadle's in there. This is where like the Paul Thomas Anderson like stable of actors starts to form itself. You got your Philip Seymour Hoffman's and you got your you know, like a John C. Riley, um, Melora Walters comes in for a little bit. William H. Macy, Luis Guzman, all these, you know, these guys, like, as he would make movies, like, these people would always crop up in those movies. Um, I'm taking a sip of this, Mario. Hmm. Mario gave me a beer. And it's, who is it? Bissell? Bissell Brothers, yeah. Bissell Brothers. From Portland, Maine. The nuclear whim with the fuse of a mile. It's pretty good. It's very foggy. No. It's a New England style IPA. Mm. It's kind of apple-y. A little apple-y? I don't know. It doesn't matter. Um, but it is, it is a rush. And every time, oh, I was talking about what it's, I was talking about what it's about. Um, and it's just about porn. It's just about making porn. And Jack thinks at some point that he's going to make a really good movie. And Dirk thinks that he's going to make a really good movie. And then, uh, you know, video creeps in and porn stars become teenagers just off the street that look like they have uh, venereal diseases. And uh, everyone starts doing too much, too many drugs. And uh, no one has a backup plan. And um, everyone's improvised backup plan is terrible. Dirk is jerking off in cars for guys and Jack and roller girl are making, uh, you know, um, live shot porns in limousines with just random dudes off the street having sex with roller girl. Um, but there's like a million scenes that you could say like is the best scene or just when you think that you've seen like the best scene of the movie, there's another scene. That's even better than that last scene. And even the stuff in this movie that's really dark, um, it's dark in the best possible way, which I think is something that Paul Thomas Anderson does better than anybody, where it's not just dark, not dark and sad, and it's not dark and depressing, it's dark and really fucking exciting. Like, you just kind of have to... You're just along for the ride, regardless of how intense it gets. Um... But yeah, I'll throw. I'm gonna. I'm gonna throw it to Mario early here, and we'll get the conversation going about like Boogie Nights, like as a movie. Yeah, for the thing for me is is Boogie Nights in an interesting way, and kind of a lot of uh, kind of Boogie Nights and Magnolia both. Um, there's a tremendous amount of kinetic energy with uh, a slew of players, mm. um, and. It, the early Paul Thomas Anderson established to be that I'm not a big Robert Altman guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, just because, like, watching shortcuts and, like, Nashville and the players, they're, it's doing a lot of the same similar things. There's a lot of echoes there of, you know, sure, yeah, like yeah. Dylan Titchener worked under Geraldine Perona, uh, Perona, Perona, the, the, ed, her, you know, Altman's, Altman's editor. editor, yeah. Um, but it's just better. It's 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 it's, it's more has, focused. It, yeah, it's focused. Um, 
everything is, is gradually building. It's it's bubbling. It's, yeah. it, it feels like a frog inside of a you know slowly boiling pot. Mm-hmm. And so there's a certain kind of overall intensity, and it's just to, told done. Not necessarily through you know, the narrative, like there's definitely moments in the narrative that would do that, but it's done just by how kinetic it is, how frantic it is, but also how controlled it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and Altman's films to me kind of feel like they, they have a lot of working parts, um, you know, and, and they're, they're massive sort of behemoth things, you know, they're trying to spin a lot of plates, but they fall apart and they end up just kind of crashing for mm-hmm. me um and and so this movie especially at you know magnolia maybe to a, a lesser degree just destroys like the illusion of like the altman to me and it's it's just there's not many other films that can have so many different things going on at once and yet never lose that focus of storytelling and never lose that focus of energy. Mm-hmm. Like there's some criticisms that feels slightly long. Like some people have said that it's it's slightly long, but not because of the fact that it. But they always like they, some of the negative, not negative reviews, but some of like the reserved reviews had said that its length kind of betrays its like what kind of grandiose ideas it could reach. But they're not actually criticizing the length. They're criticizing the fact that it's like, well, if it's this long, it should be trying to do. This it should be trying to like reach this this higher level, and I guess that's kind of like what Altman tried to do was like I have this kind of big thing, and I need to do something. With the it. higher level of what? Fuck knows. Like like great ideas is what they're saying. Oh, and, like and it like, should have like a well because Siskel and Ebert like argued about this on the show where like Siskel was just like this movie doesn't say anything, and that and Ebert was like it doesn't have to say anything. No, it's amazing. It's, it's just you know in the <clears throat> way that. You know, you could say like Pulp Fiction or Goodfellas exists more as like a love letter to a certain fragment of time or to a certain fragment of ideas that exist in certain amount parts of pop culture. That's what Boogie Nights is doing. Yeah. It is just nostalgia done in a very modern way. Well, I think Boogie Nights is really fascinating because I get the impression, and I haven't heard him say this, and I've listened to a lot of interviews with him recently, that he, you know, I get the impression that he wanted to make a certain kind of movie. And so instead of like the the porn scene in the seventies seemed to be the best way for him to make the movie that he wanted. Like that seemed to be the most apt and and ready made stage to put like this movie onto. Because then he'll do the same thing in Magnolia, and even though it's you know spoiler alert for people that are keeping track, it's much higher on my list than Boogie Nights, and that's why Boogie Nights is here. And then there's going to be a couple of other Paul Thomas Andersons. Like that, we're going to talk about from this point. You know what I mean? Um, More than a couple, if you include my list. Right. Well, that's a, yeah, exactly. Um, he. What was that? Did someone use him? I'm hearing things. It was like a cat. <laughs> Rat it. I, thought, I thought I heard a cat, man. Um, Coming from the pile of socks. It's not behind me, JP. Oh, but this is non-alcoholic beer, but it's strapped to the gills with THC. <laughs> Imagine if that were true. I'm just like, fuck you. Imagine if I went home and like posted this and like somebody emailed me and was like, yeah, your podcast is 14 hours long and you're crying for half of it. And Mario's just laughing. 
That sounds very Paul Thomas Anderson-y. Um, but he, he just, he finds these, he wanted to make a certain kind of movie. And also, also I was saying about Magnolia. So he does the same thing in Magnolia. You know what I mean? It's like a huge, um, a huge idea. Lots of characters, like all interspersed throughout um, LA. Boogie Nights is different because a lot of these characters are like contained in this, in this one area for most of the movie. Um, and when they're not, even when they're not, they still are. They're still in porn. Magnolia, everyone's kind of doing something something different. And it seemed like he just kind of... He wanted to go as big as humanly possible. He wasn't really trying to go big here. He was trying to evoke a mood. And he was trying to um, get out... Get across, like, a specific emotion. Um, like, to that end, I think some of the... Like, the early scenes with... Um, Dirk and his parents, like, there's a lot of stuff that seems kind of rote in this movie that's just in it just because it has to be in there. But I think that's purposeful. And that, in the end, has um, a kind of galvanizing effect on everything that comes after it. So it does start from a normal base. You know what I mean? I guess the one normal thing is that we don't really have a clear idea of how large his penis is when the movie starts. Um, but, you know, he that girl loves when he makes love to her she loves his, she loves his cock you know what i mean and 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 guys like watching him masturbate he tells jack in the in the kitchen of <clears throat> of the restaurant he works in that he doesn't have to work in but i guess he does work in it because you know all these famous people famous put famous in air quotes in there um but he ties all the emotions that are kind of going through this whole movie, like, even, like, the really obscure ones, even, like, you know, little Bill, you know, kills himself, and, like, his, you know, his, the the kind of side story with his wife is always fucking somebody else besides him, and, and then he kills her, and then kills, you know, the guy she's fucking on New Year's Eve, and then he kills himself. That's a sad story, I guess, in and of itself. But it's also kind of indicative of a lot of the underlying themes of the movie that are that Dirk is also going to have to deal with that everybody's also going to have to deal with so Boogie Nights is kind of amazing in that it takes all these narrative threads but they're all going to the same place and it doesn't mean that they even though they all kind of coalesce at the end and they're in that kind of you know fantasy land um, version of Jack's house where Melora Walters is painting by the pool and um, you know everyone seems really happy and stuff like that um, it doesn't really that's that's just kind of for fun. I don't think that has to be there. I think Paul, we'll talk later about Paul Thomas Anderson and his problem with endings. Um, but that's, I mean, th- everything is everything is pointing in a very specific direction. Even when it seems like it's not pointing in that direction anymore, the emotions are still... The em- uh, emotional narrative of this movie is still... Like, holds true through the whole thing, even when it gets really fucking crazy. Like, even when... After New Year's Eve, when, you know, Dirk's main focus is singing the best, you know, the best pop song ever with John C. Riley doing the best dance ever with Mike, with Michael Penn barely hiding his disdain for what he's like having to sit through. Um, and, you know, then, you know, with the with the Buck stuff, um, you know, him getting denied the loan. Um, all that stuff is the same. Like, it all seems different because everyone's doing something different, but it's all 
representative of the same thing. And I think that's one of the reasons I love Paul Thomas Anderson because he takes these huge ideas and he just narrows the focus of them to this one thing. And we'll talk about that later when we talk about your movie. And we'll talk about that later when we talk about the other bunch of movies that are also on my list of his. Um, But the energy in Boogie Nights that he tells that story with is kind of unbelievable. I mean, the tension... So you had mentioned the donut shop scene, you know, which is just like a classic scene. Um, the donut shop scene happens really fast. Yeah, it's it's, it's not like a drawn no. out scene, but it is fucking crazy. Um, I think. Why do you think that is? I have my own theories about like what what why that scene seems so impactful. Um, I think I think the speed by which it moves, and you know, you get few longer cut shots in there but then all of a sudden it really cuts very quickly so it has it kind of has a jarring energy to it mm-hmm. um that it's just from a perspective of of how that scene is edited and and that the actual shot composition is pretty i don't know i don't think the shot composition plays any role but just how the 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 <clears throat> weird sort of inconsistent not inconsistency but the weird sort of dichotomy of how that how that scene is shot mm-hmm make creates an uneasiness like it makes me it makes you so uneasy yeah you know uneasy is a good word you know what makes me uneasy is the the, like the guy with the gun he seems to really not care what's going on and the customer you yeah and you don't that guy that's like sitting there eating a donut you don't ever get the sense that this is going to work out really well even though you can you know he has a gun way before anyone else knows he has a gun um but his face dictates that like this guy probably sucks at this like, this guy probably thinks he's really good at this, and he's really terrible at it. And isn't that a really handy metaphor for, like, everything else that's happening in the movie? Like, everyone thinks that they're really they're really kicking ass. You know what I mean? They're, everyone's doing karate chops and karate kicks on stage at, you know, the third annual porno awards or whatever. Um, but everyone ultimately really sucks at life. They only are good at one thing, and when they try to do anything else, it all just kind of crumbles underneath them. Um, I love this movie so much that I love Thomas Jane in it. And I oh, fucking hate Thomas Jane as an actor. Not as a per- I don't even know him as a person. Maybe he's a good person. Do you know him? I wish. JP, do you know Thomas Jane? I do not. We do Who not know Thomas Jane. Who does he even play in this? He's, um... He's, um... He, uh, the guy to get Killed by Alfred Molina. Um, he is uh, what is that character's name? Why am I Randy Todd Parker. Todd, Todd Parker. Fucking shit, Todd Parker. Um, I just watched this movie like two days ago, um, and he's amazing in this. Amazing, and the, like the juxtaposition of well, Alfred Jane's Thomas Jane's usually good. We talked about this multiple times. Thomas Jane is not usually good. Yep. No, he's not. He uh, was in Dreamcatcher. Watched all three. You'll, well, yeah, but. Wait, I just think you hate everyone from Dreamcatcher now. I do hate everyone from Dreamcatcher. Could you also say Timothy Olyphant's a bad actor? He is. And Damien Lewis. But, yeah. And Jason Lee. Well, I'll, I'll, give, you, <laughs> I'll give you Jason Lee. But Damien Lewis is pretty okay. I never watched Homeland, whichever one. Billions. Uh, no, wait. I already never watched. He's in Billions. He's in well. Billions, yeah. Um, like, those two are the things that people talk about, but I've never really cared about those shows. But Timothy Olyphant... And Thomas Jane, you're just egregiously wrong about. I only like Timothy Olyphant in one thing. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. That's it. 
I'm sorry. Just saying you're wrong. I feel bad. I feel really bad about it. Thomas Jane, they, apparently all these guys went on to be like acclaimed TV actors, though. Because all three of them have TV shows where they're like critically adored. Cream Thomas Catcher, Jane in? Uh, hung. That's not on anymore, though. Yeah. But and that's all, Jane, had. that's all Jane Adams. Jane Adams is doing that. Jane Adams was the better part of that. Jane Adams is great. But Thomas Jane was great in that too. I don't. I don't know Mario. I don't just know. saying. Just saying. I don't think you're ever gonna get me to. I'm not see saying. The light on this. I'm not saying you're wrong. What I'm saying is, you're incorrect. Um, I love this movie, and this opened my Paul Thomas Anderson window, and I, I let all the Paul Thomas Anderson in after this. This is my dude. This is my dude. Yeah. And, and, Definitely, if I was sitting here wanting to put like it 100 greatest films list, this would be a strong contender. But it's interesting that this doesn't have much of a mental impact on me or an emotional impact. I think it's hard because it's, it's become, it has been so absorbed by the culture. You know what I mean? It's impossible. Well, I, saw, I saw it really before it got refound. But, even, but it doesn't, even still. Like it's the, I think I saw it like an 04. Yeah, so I guess it would be, you know, that's in his weird in-between period. Like when, between this and There Will Be Blood, when he made yeah, Magnolia, Magnolia Punch Drug Love. Magnolia, like, people were kind of of the mind that Magnolia was like this overlooked masterpiece at that time. But they're like, Boogie Nights was kind of like still a developing auteurs film. You know, like, like the, the ideas of that time. It's called it a great film, but said it wasn't a fully developed well because it was still borrowing from it was borrowing from altman too much it was borrowing from goodfellas too borrowing much borrowing from altman well just those the, i could we could do an episode about how much i hate robert altman we should pick him we should pick a movie next year and like just kind of dig into it yeah because neither of us give a shit about robert altman i just don't care like i know what he does and i know why i'm supposed to like it i just don't and even when brett easton tells me i have to or else I'm just like a lefty loser. I I just can't can't do it. Oh yeah, Robert Altman, the love of the white nationalists. Robert Altman just really dug into those ideas. And that's why I love Brett Easton Ellis because he like has his like traditional movie like opinions, and I think those are great. And then he just the po- every podcast transitioned into him talking about the media, and he's just like all the Trump the Trump haters out there. Um, wake up, liberal media. Oh. Uh, yeah, Boogie Nights is great. I love Boogie Nights. But Boogie Nights is like, it's a thing, it's like a gateway drug. Like, if you, you have to see Boogie Nights first, like, I guess you could see. Much like marijuana. Yeah. yeah I guess you can see, um, no, much like Athletic Brewing Company beers. Um, yeah, you could see, like, Heart 8 if you want. Like, but you're gonna start with Boogie Nights because Boogie Nights is the movie that you start yes, with. Yes, Boogie and Nights is. And if you like Boogie Nights, you're going. I'm, remember, there's a really interesting. Um, Boogie Nights is <clears> the introduction. <throat> it's the it's the Paul Thomas Anderson 101. Yeah, and if it's you like Boogie Nights, then you go into Punch Drunk Love. Because if you don't like Boogie Nights, you're probably not gonna like anything else. You gotta finish with, I guess, Master. Or that's probably the one that with the highest gate entry gateway. Oh, I don't know. Yeah, Master's tough. How, how, how would you rank these? That you, if, if you were telling a person to go through the filmography, I go, I'd say Boogie Nights, Boogie Nights, Punch Drunk Love. I no, I don't, I don't think so. I think you go Boogie Nights. There will be blood, because those are the two 
Those are the two touchstones of his like okay. oeuvre. Boogie Nights, There Will Be Blood. And then I might say Magnolia. I think Magnolia might be a little tough for people. But, I'd say Punch Drunk Love and then Phantom Thread. And this is saying that Heart 8 can just be watched whenever. Yeah. Heart yeah, 8 yeah. doesn't really have it. I mean, it's a it's a good, solid film. It's just, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's just not doing the same. Yeah. Not doing the same thing as this stuff. Like, he's finding his visual and kind of, like, spacing, but it's not, like... Yeah, he's te- he's just testing things out, and I think maybe, one of the maybe reasons- you finish with Punch Drunk Love and The Master. No, I think you finish actually finishing with Punch Drunk Love is pretty good because you get to see a lot of the things that he would work on later. And we talked about this during the Punch Drunk Love episode. He does him and Robert Elsbeth do a lot of techniques that they would use later on. There will be blood and The Master, not like visual things, but like camera movement things. And the way they use music and the sound design um, and the way they frame things, like the really uncomfortable way they frame stuff. So there's, I remember the shot, uh, the shot I'm thinking of is the shot in the bathroom of Puncher Glove. When, like, the, the, bathroom when the guys, co- no, when he's can, like confronting him okay. about like destroying the bathroom and he's just like, they're in that really tight space. Yeah. There's a lot of shots in the master that are just like two people in a really tight space just kind of having like a discussion about something or they're just being really close together. Um, but the master takes it one step further and that so in say like the jail cell scene where they're they're framed perfectly in this space together, but Philip Seymour Hoffman isn't moving and Joaquin Phoenix is going fucking crazy. So it's almost like he's 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 setting himself up so that he can... Ex- he's setting up... He's establishing a new language for himself so he can expand that language later. And ma- it makes There Will Be Blood kind of a, um, an anomaly in this because he hadn't worked with Daniel Day-Lewis yet and, like, he hadn't worked in the desert yet. Um, and I think that stuff made him kind of crazy because there's stuff that he... Does in There Will Be Blood that doesn't look like anything else he does on in any other movie. Um, and that could be because of the color. That could be because of the lighting. That could be because of the time period that it dictates that it has to be different. Um, but I think that's one of the reasons that I love Boogie Nights too, is because you can see all that stuff. You could see all that stuff in the movie. Like there's stuff about the 70s. Like, yeah, the 70s, it has the shoes, it has this, it has this, it has this. But, um, you know, porn looked a certain way in the 70s. And that's, like, the really specific thing. It's not, what, it's not how these people looked, per se. It was how they acted. It was what their values were. It was what was important to them, like, growing up in the 70s um, in, in L.A. at that time when, like, porn was one thing or whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah, he's... You know, you have your guys who we're going to talk about a lot over the next like thirty nine episodes. Paul Thomas Harris is one of my guys. It's just like there's oh no no no, but like the pivotal like the pivotal film list. You have your couple of people. I have my couple of people. Mm. Today is an interesting episode because we're talking about two of those people on the same episode. You know, it's like, lined also, up perfectly. I also like how we didn't talk about my second favorite Paul Thomas Anderson film when talking about the organization, which is what Inherent Vice. Oh yeah, well, we'll, so we've already agreed that we're going to do a Paul Tom. We're going to do an Inherent Vice and Hard Eight episode after we get through all of my Paul Thomas Anderson movies. Where we talk about his part in cigarettes and wait, no, he did cigarettes and did he do something cigarettes and coffee? Or was it like a different, like a short? That's Iggy Pop. 
Oh, he actually does a. He, he it was a short film he did, with Philip Baker Hall. Oh, like first before like, this stuff. Yeah, this is like '93. He also like this is based on apparently a mockumentary. Yeah, from 1988. Oh, you haven't seen it? It's yeah. terrible. I imagine. I mean, he's 17. Yeah, I think it's. I think it's like a VHS thing. Yeah, I think it's from the 80, like, 88. It's 88. Yeah. yeah. Um, all right. So. I mean, Impressive for a 17-year-old. Paul Thomas Anderson. Everything he does is good. He Apparently, he had... David Foster Wallace was his teacher when he went, briefly went to Emerson. Oh, really? So that makes all the sense of the world. He, David Foster Wallace ruined him. <laughs> all right. Um, we will be right back with Mario's 40. Just a sec. It's in that plastic thing. I hate that plastic thing. Yeah. What is that? Because that's the not, li- That's not even safe. The liquor store by my house buys, like, you know, cases of stuff, and then they just break it up into six-packs. What is the thing? Long Trail Ale? They changed their logo? Terrible. What was wrong with the last one? Was... Oh, yeah. That's no good. Yeah. Long Trail. Come on, guys. Get it together. Get it together. But we would like to do a remote podcast from your... Brewery. That's a nice. That's a nice brewery. It really is. Nice. Yeah. It's outside in the cold. Ooh, I love it. They have good brats, or brats, and some brats probably around too. There's probably brats. Yeah. yeah. I used to have a zip-up hooded sweatshirt from Long Trail, but it disintegrated into nothing. Rematerialized into the cosmos. It's gonna form a small child at some point. Hopefully, a sweatshirt child. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> I said there was going to be two directors that featured fairly prominently in uh, the top half of my list. The uh, well, two 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 sets of directors. Uh, the first one we talked about last week, David Cronenberg. We're going to talk about him a couple more times next week. Yeah, next week, and then later, a little later, a little later. The other ones, though, are going to feature fairly regularly from... Yeah, I was looking at the list today, and I was like, oh, yeah. It's like (laughs) every, like, five episodes. (laughs) It's just another film from these directors. Though I'm not looking forward to the the next one. Well, Joel's doing it by himself. Why? I don't know. Just don't need another Macbeth. Ugh. Is that really what's happening? Yeah, he's doing Joel. He's Denzel Washington. And oh my God! And, and like, like Denzel and Francis McDormand are Macbeth and Lady Macbeth, and there's no Ethan. Just Joel. Ethan's like, I don't want to fucking do this. Yeah, Ethan's just like, I'll wake Hudsucker Proxy too. Wait, is he making Hudsucker Proxy too? No, I'm just continue. So, Go. They're these direct these two Joel and Ethan Cohen have been there. Since the beginning, for me. If I was really being honest with myself, Hudsucker Proxy would have would probably have made it on this list. Why aren't you being honest with yourself? Because I rewatched it and it wasn't as good. It's just entertaining. It looks really nice. Um, like it's striking. It's striking from a from a point of view of I could see a, a little kid. I love Hudsucker being Hudsucker just Hudsucker. so utterly like overwhelmed by you that. know what's funny we should do our 36s with we should conjoin we should do like a hudsucker proxy a block a block with our 36s because that like works really no, well that does visually it does you're right 
could also do Dark City with that. Yeah. We wanted to do Dark City for a long time. People are sitting there going like, well, we know that 36 is. People are, people are sitting there going like, these two fucking idiots sh- shut up and start doing the list. <laughs> um, and so, there's, these two are just in my blood. Mm. Anytime they, they create a new film, I'm there. Anytime they... Talk about doing a new idea, I'm there. Unless it's Macbeth. I still watch it. Not looking forward to it. Yeah, yeah. But being so overwhelmed by Hudsucker Proxy as a kid, I begged my parents to take me to see what would become, uh, until recently, probably their most famous film. Like, is it still probably their most famous? I think it is. But I think it's it's like a one two. It's like a one A and a one B. Yeah. Or a one and one A. The one A we're gonna talk about later. True grit. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it is Hail Caesar. No. <laughs> no, 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 no. But I am talking, of course, of their nineteen ninety six Fargo. Mind if I sit down? Carrying quite a load here. Where's Jerry? Got your damn money. Now where's my daughter? Jeez. Blood has been shed. We don't want the entire 80,000. I answered the darn... I'm cooperating here. You have no call to get snippy with me. I'm just doing my job here. <gasps> what do you fellas got yourself mixed up in? Police! <laughs> so, is there anything else you can tell me about him? He wasn't circumcised. Oh, yeah? I'm not going to do a plot description. We talked about the plot description before. What happens in Fargo? Oh, my God. People want to know. No, you don't do this. We're not going to do this. It's just a waste of time. Um, well, it's the same thing with Boogie Nights. I like, just, do I you just... really not know what happens in Fargo? Yeah. They've made a show with, like, three pretty great seasons Yeah, of this. I mean, it's not the same, but... No, but if I just said to you, like, Marge Gunderson and Jerry Lundergaard, like, you'd be like, oh, yeah, that guy. I understand exactly what you're talking about. All you have to say is, like, John Carroll Lynch, and you're like, Zodiac or Fargo. Quick aside, but I'm going to leave this running for. We have to do a... John Carroll Lynch episode for n- Drew Carey Well, show? not John Carroll Lynch per se. Well, John Carroll Lynch, <laughs> yes, but not for Drew Carey episode per se. We have to figure out who is the most prominent non-lead actor on our lists. Because I feel like we've talked about a million John Carroll Lynch movies. Yeah, I feel like we have. Like he, I feel like he's in like lots of things. I'll look that up after the episode. See how many That's, you know what I mean? Like we should figure out who this person is. I do like the, the connection of really great, solid William H. Macy performances, considering there's yep. not a lot after this. What if it turns out to be Thomas Jane? Oh, my God. That would haunt me. <laughs> he's, or he's just like an uncredited like somebody in like every movie, and he's just like, and then I rewatch it, and he's just right there. I'm sorry. So see, no, it's no, that's fine. This is an emotional thing for me. Mm. Um, not not an emotional like in a, a deep emotional sense, but it. This is, I think, the film. This is the year where I got into film, mm. and it's a connection between this and a movie I talked about long ago that got me into watching movies and being obsessed with movies, and that was Scream, mm-hmm. Scream, and this. 
you know, come out the same year. This comes out, what, uh, like Marchish? I don't think I I didn't see it until video. My parents didn't actually. Oh, really? March? Yeah, I think it comes out. Mar- I don't know. If it's like the wide release in March, but it comes out earlier in the year. Because I remember that being like a thing. Hmm. Like I remember actually caring about the Oscars that year, and it being a th- like hearing about like oh, it was released earlier. Um, right? Was that? Now you're making me. I'm sorry. I didn't know. I was like, that was that sounds amazing. I was just going to make a comment on the fact that it, you know, Oscar or like movie releasing has changed so much. I thought it was earlier. Well, the soundtrack comes out in May, so it had to have come, maybe had to it comes come out, out a little early. Had to come out like around May yeah. at the worst. Like it comes out in the UK in May, so I'm assuming it comes out in the US around that time. Yeah, yeah. I was I was nine years old, guys. You're fine. So I saw I saw this and Scream on video like near around the same time and. The emotional experience I have with this is before I saw movies and they were just good. I saw films and, you know, I just liked them for yep. a sensory reason, mm-hmm. for, for no reason whatsoever except the fact that I enjoyed it. I was entertained by it. Maybe I could look at something and be like, oh, that looks pretty. Like I could look at like Rescuers Down Under where the, the Australian villain falls to his death. And, like, the, the nice long shot. Like, that's animated really well. Mm-hmm. Rescuers Down Under also almost made my list. That was the, that was like the animated Rescuers Down Under. That was the animated movie I was obsessed with. Did Ferngully almost make your list? No, I fucking hated Ferngully. <laughs> but this was the time where I saw a film and everything was parts. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> parts coming into play. Where I'd look at something and be like, oh, that looks good. Gorgeous. You know, the constant top-down shots, the wide shots of just white interspersed with a couple cars yep. here and there, or a bloody body being kind of dragged across. You know, starting out with that deep pews of blue, like you notice the shots. And of course you notice the shots, because it's fucking Roger Deakins. He's pretty good. Yeah. Everyone's saying he he's going to win second. Everyone's saying he's going to win second this year. For? 1917. That's another movie we're going to have to confront at some point. That movie looks actually pretty good. I'm not shocked. Sam Mendes is consistent. People hate Sam Mendes. Because they're wrong. You, you even hate Sam Mendes. I don't hate Sam Mendes. I think Revolution Road stinks. But that's not his... Actually, it's not his fault. It's Leonardo DiCaprio's fault. I like Jarhead. Jarhead's even great. Jarhead was pretty good. Jarhead is a weird, is a weird fucking it's movie. It's a weird movie. Yeah. And I, I think in that regard, it's successful. Mm-hmm. But, you know, even... I'm not a big Carter Burwall fan, but even kind of like that score works and the screenplay and the performances, you know, especially like, you know, obviously Francis McDormand and like this indicted my love of Steve Buscemi. Mm -hmm. Like I would go on to every time, every time, even to now, like this started the thing where Steve Buscemi is like a thing. I'm a a man I'm obsessed with, Mm -hmm. you know, like the only reason I wanted to go see Armageddon besides like CGI shit was Steve Buscemi was in it, and I saw Steve Buscemi in the trailers, and I needed to see Armageddon because Steve Buscemi was in it. Mm-hmm. And this just ignited the flame. This, and I think, rewatching it, it still works. Like oh this God. is a movie I would show a kid. Like it's violent, and this is why I don't have kids. <laughs> I guess but I was parents, talking about giving him beer. My parents. My parents let me see this from a young age, and I think I think if your kids maybe like I was like ten ish when I saw this. I think a nine when it came out. Ten, I had, so I had to have been ten 
why well, I saw this. Maybe if like a kid's emotionally ready for it and they care about movies, like this is May- yeah. This feels like it and it feel you know, it's it's adult material for sure, but the humor in it works across all levels. Like, you know, as a ten year old I was laughing my ass off as you got your partner there in the wood chipper, you know, like that line, it's it's hilarious to a kid. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's it's striking because it's something that is so works so amazingly in its component parts, but it's it forms a full functioning being. But at the same time, you recognize, 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 recognize everything working together. It feels like the most extremely perfect, well-oiled machine. You know what's so funny, Mario? And I don't really don't mean to interrupt you, but this is like episode forty is the perfect example of the differences in our lists because Boogie Nights seems like such a mess and there's all these weird imperfections and there's all this weird, like these surrealist touches that aren't meant to be surrealism, but they're just kind of in there because they're fucking awesome. And this movie is just a tightly, perfectly crafted, executed piece of art. You know what I mean? On every level, Everything is and like I've got two books on the table here. I've got the Cohen Adam Naiman's Cohen Brothers book, and I've got my Roger Ebert book, The Great Movies. And he, both Adam Naiman and Roger Ebert, think totally different things about Fargo. You know what I mean? And it's because, and they always reference they reference like the same scenes, but they reference different things in the same scenes. They reference different lines in the same scenes. Everything is constructed. So that everything seems like it means something to everything else that's happening. Um, it's really, really, really fascinating. Yeah. And I think that is – it's interesting because I love perfection in film. I love these focused attention to craft. Like I don't, I don't respond so well to like the imperfections in film. Like mm-hmm. my, the one Paul Thomas Anderson film I have on my <laughs> list – is the one where like everything's perfectly done until like until it it's stops. too until it's too perfectly done. No, but the last part's not like that's yeah. going to be the perfect talk for endings. Is what I assume you're saying, right? My, yep, my, that's where you know, I was going. Yep. But I feel like he had a reason for it, and I and there had to have been a uh, there had to have been in his mind a necessity to it. You see a fork pointed, and you just end it there, or spoon. Um, but we'll, we'll talk about it. Yeah, we're going to talk about um, the Coens from my side four more times in this. I think four, maybe even more. Um, I just got one. No, two. From me, from my side. Yeah, yeah. You know, and excluding in two weeks or two, three weeks, we're not going to talk about the Coens until my top ten. So I will admit I have three Coen Brothers films in my top ten because of the reason that it's just I, I this made me respond to craftsmanship. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it is that is this was like the sign to me of a perfect film. Um because it, it you know it, there's there's a tone it has its own voice. I could see the bits of Hudsucker Proxy in this. I can see, like, the vastness and the quirkiness. And you know, I hate the word quirky, but, like the, like, the personality there, you know. But there's such vastly different projects in terms of the 
story they're telling, especially when you're a kid. Um, but then they have their own their own natural being, and each of their films since then has kind of done that to the same degree. And I look at it as a math, like a mathematical equation. Sure. Um, what I would consider to be the best Coen Brothers film, not the highest on my list, is is like almost definitively and storyline wise deals with like math in itself. Um, that would be my number. Eight, by the way, mm-hmm. in case you're wondering. I knew what it was. Yeah, okay. Um, <laughs> which is another movie. Actually, you're talking about people coming back and saying, like, we need to relook at films. That movie is getting a lot of, like, traction suddenly, saying, like, yeah. this is the best Coen Brothers film. We should mm-hmm. talk about that. Yes, that is 100% true. Um, which is weird because there's a movie, they have a movie that people agree is, like, objectively, they have two movies that people agree are, like, objectively their best movies, and then a third movie that is, like, well, this is the most culturally significant movie. In the Big Lebowski, I think mm. that's you know that's taken on a life of its like, own. What would you say? What would you say is that? Oh, the two are. I would say No Country and Fargo okay. are like objectively perfect, and Big Lebowski is like a cultural it's like touchstone. Know, yeah, it's, it's whatever. It's 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 significance is beyond a film at this point. Mm-hmm. Exactly, and and then the Lady Killers. And intolerable cruelty. And intolerable cruelty. They, they, together, they, they combine some, to make a really have, significant. They have movie. a few misses. I like Lady Killers a lot, though, and I've said that many times. It's just, it's just fun. It's the second best Marlon Wayans movie. We all know what the first is. <laughs> oh, oh, right. Duh. It's like, wait, what? I'm gonna call that. Oh, I always forget Marlon Wayans is in that for some reason. We can get a pound of pure Mario. <laughs> um, we th- the three of us together, just like them, get a pound of pure. But this, you know, they say like doing drugs or drinking too much changes your brain neurologically or things you know. Yeah, obviously because that's how science works. <laughs> don't tell the administration that. Um, There's no science. They don't acknowledge that word. <laughs> but. I almost feel as though this film changed the development yeah, of my brain. Absolutely. In terms of, of what film meant to me, mm-hmm. what I look for in film. Like, I don't think I respond to Hitchcock in the same way without like, the Coens because of like, the meticulous control I agree with you. of it. I don't respond to, you know, I'm trying to think of what else. I don't think I respond to. Um, uh, Julian Schnebel, especially, you know, just directors who I think have such, but that are making art. They're, they're making visual, art. They're visual, they visual art, but not visual art in the sense of 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 a lack of control or a lack of kind of like throwing things on a, on a no, screen. No, 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 um, no, yeah. Which I'm trying to think of a, a great director who, who does maybe like Peck and Paw has a kind of like loss of a slight Aronofsky, loss of control. But Aronofsky's like, a little like that. Yeah. Um, Directors I love, like we're going to talk about Peckinpah and Aronofsky as well, but a lot. on my side. Um, no, but do you have any Peckinpah on your list? No, but I have a lot of Aronofsky. Oh, yeah. Um, but I don't think I, res- you know, I, I think maybe I look at those films like like a Julian Schnabel or, or, you know, Hitchcock has more mechanical mm-hmm. features or maybe just has, I don't look at them as component parts without, you know, this, this, this youth. Young introduction to the yeah. Coens. 
Yeah, I'm I mean, not even like talking right now about Fargo. It's just I, I think this. But just Fargo the, is that movie. Yeah, yeah. I think this is the you know we're talking about introductions. Like this is the Coen Brothers movie you start with. Well, and they then, can, like. I mean, I think it just this is the introduction to my like emotional resonance with it. Yeah, we're getting to that point in the list now where like after a, a certain number of more, we're gonna get into the ones. For lack of a better way to say it, like that kind of define us as people. You know what I mean? Like we've done all the work up to a certain point. Like after we get to 33 on me, it's this is me. This is every 32 and up is like a weird version of like a weird expression of, of myself. You know well, what I mean? All, they're all the Thin Man serials. So I mean, <laughs> you just really love those movies. Um, but the, my, my number 33 is like the same type of thing that you are just describing. Like if I hadn't, it transformed the way I thought about movies and probably everything else. My number three transformed the way I look at set design. So we're on the same page. We're on the same page. 33 kind of ruined my life. Like I thought I had done something terrible when I watched like my number 33, but we just, because we grew up differently that like it was, it, it, Seemed like I, I had transgressed like nature, um, and what I find, and I just want to say this really quickly about yeah, Fargo yeah, yeah. before I can like release the table, t- release the table, pass the pass the pass the bucket, pass the chair, pass the pass the, pass the mic. No, I don't think we have to do that for this one. We're um, kind of going back and forth. I agree with you in terms of like the sense that that this film's like vehemently like nihilistic, and it kind of carries that kind of same tones of just like. You know, people call it darkly funny, but it's not, it's meant to be funny, but it doesn't have that kind of like tinge of like hopefulness that people mm. say it does. But this movie makes me feel good. Yeah. Like yeah. It's, it's, it's a warm feeling movie. Like there's something, we talked about what the warm blanket movies, you know, mm-hmm. this is, this is something you snug in tight with because it feels right. It, even though it has like this really dark outlook on life. The way in which everything works together to form this like perfect creature mm-hmm. makes you just feel as though everything, everything's gonna be okay. Not thematically or story wise. I'm talking just like it has a construction. Like this is a movie that I put on when I'm feeling bad and feeling like I'm losing control because this has control. Well, but I think that would be probably because to like do like an armchair psychoanalysis of that. It's because. Even though every single part of this movie is significant to every other part of this movie, you understand it. Mm-hmm. And the warm feeling comes from the fact that, like, this movie's depths are, like, limitless, but you can get there every single time you watch it. And I think that's where my feelings about its darkness have not been with me for, like, forever, since, like, the first time I saw it. It's more... Like in the last couple of years, as I've kept going back to Fargo, because of the same reason, it's just so good that like if if when it pops into your head, you're just like, yeah, I'll watch that, and I'll watch the whole thing because it's not long, you know, it's so well done that it it's you know there's a million things to latch onto, but you could kind of dig into these details a little bit, and everything's a detail and everything's significant, and um. They've laid all these little traps for you to like feel a certain way about things, and then if you dig a layer deeper, you the things that you felt are all of a sudden irrelevant, and then you watch it a year later and you dig another layer deeper, and it's um, 
it just kind of keeps going like that. Like if you if this is your your jam, you will just find things in it like forever. Um, it's kind of how the same way that I approach Paul Thomas Anderson movies or Darren Aronofsky movies. Um, you just it just keeps going and going and going and kind of renewing itself. You know what I mean? And every time you watch it, it seems like the first time I was having this conversation. Oh, I was having this conversation at work today about. Um, what was it? It was music and the strokes. No, it wasn't at work. It was at home the other night. So me and my wife have been watching the marvelous Mrs. Maisel. And one of the episodes ends with a song from this is it. Um, or is this it? And I was like, Oh my God. I remember when I first heard is this it? And it like, it wasn't like a feeling like in my mind, it was like a feeling in my body. Like this is, this is really some, this was kind of like an altering an altering thing and like how that's lost like forever. Like I'm never going to feel that way about this record again. Cause I've heard it a million times and I'm like 15 years older than I was when I originally heard it or more than that. How old? I mean, is this, it came out in 2001. So we're approaching almost 20 years of, of the strokes now people. I hope you appreciate what they did for you. Um, but like, you're never going to get that stuff back for certain things. I think movies are a place where you can get that back, where you can kind of always continue having that feeling forever. It's like I talked about it last week with Antichrist. I'm going to talk about it. I talked about it with Boogie Nights. You talked about it with Fargo. We're going to talk about it with a lot of other movies where every time you turn it on, it seems to renew itself and you can get back to that first time when you saw it and it blew your fucking mind. Um, it's and I and I, it's a, it's an unfortunate thing that I think I've lost with 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 music, which was like my first thing. We you talked a couple of weeks ago, like music was my number one. Um, I just think it's gone. I'm never getting there again with music. Where like I turn something on and it's I turned on Jack Johnson the other day. I'm talking to JP in the car for the kids, and you know the do 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 do, and I was like I just like wanted to hear it, and I was like fuck, it's gone. It's not doing it. It's not doing it. It's not giving me the shivers. It's not doing all the things. But when I turned on Boogie Nights this last time and they all started dancing together, I was like, that's it. That's it. And I'm guessing that's probably the same thing with Fargo. You know what I mean? Where you turn it on, you're just, and you know, whatever scene it is happens and you're just like, there it is. Like, it's like I've never seen this movie before. And I've seen it a million times, but it's like I've never seen it. Yeah, I guess I, I'm more have an intellectual response to it now, and that's why it's kind of like the first on my list because I kind of go to, to those other films mm-hmm. that are higher on my list now for like that real emotional resonance. But I appreciate like the fact that this opened that floodgate. Yeah, and I guess Hot Sucker Proxy to a lesser degree. <laughs> I'm gonna title this episode Hot Sucker Proxy to a Lesser Degree. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. I don't know what else is there, there is to say. No, I think we pick two movies where we don't really have to say very much about like what is happening in them, and it's yeah. just like how we respond to them. And stuff, I mean, so. just the scholarship that's on both of these films speaks volumes to what they're doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, like, you know, I, like this that book that I brought is a coffee table book. Yeah, the the Cohen brothers, the Cohen brothers film. This book really t- this book really ties the films together. You don't have this book? 
I don't. You gotta get it. It's usually on sale for pretty cheap on Amazon. Hmm. I, I, I didn't even know it existed. Well, there you go. I just showed it to you. Although, when you showed it to me, the first movie I saw is this one I don't like from them. Which is? Raising Arizona. Oh, yeah. I, think, I respect what it's doing, but it just doesn't work for me. It's like it's like the one film like the one film of theirs I see that it feels really like ideologically messy in se- not in the sense of like that is their throwing ideas around and seeing kind of what what fits. Well, I think they drew really. I think they thought that they could make a movie of a certain genre, and I think it fit with their like attitude and their feelings. But I I, get, I always got the impression when I watched Raising Arizona that they were very unsatisfied with it. Like, it just, it doesn't look good. Like, it doesn't feel good. It's too bright. Like, it's just weird. It just seems odd. It's like an outlier. It's like everything else that they did. But I know people like it because Nicolas Cage is in it. That's funny because it's, like, sandwiched between two of their greats. Hmm. I don't know. Well, I, I enjoy it a lot, but like you say, when you look at all the other movies made around it, it's an anomaly. Hmm. Oh, who's that voice? <laughs> what? It's the cat. It's the end of the podcast. <laughs> well, you know it's funny. You know, it's actually, you know why it looks bad. You know, the cinematography for Raising Arizona. Or it's Sonnenfeld. Oh yeah, I forgot he was a cinematographer. Yeah. Before he started making terrible movies like Men in Black. I like some of the Men in Blacks. How many? If the answer better only be two. That's three. You like all the first three? No, I like three. Oh. I started showing Ethan Men in Black. We made it like ten minutes in, and he was the 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 bad CGI was so. You couldn't do it. Yeah, you couldn't do it. I don't know if it was scary or just offensive. You should show him Full Metal Jacket now and be like, "This is the bug guy." <laughs> you, know, you, know, you get great. it? This is how this is how it works. Yeah, you know, it's great though about Barry Sonnenfeld. The last movie he's made was uh, that that Kevin Spacey becoming a cat movie. What the hell is that? Like Nine Lives or whatever? Oh, like yeah, Kevin Spacey yeah, yeah. voicing a cat? Well, I heard that he like used to direct exit. movies from like a wooden horse. Like he would sit on like a horse. Barry Sonnenfeld? Yeah, he would sit on like a wooden horse on a saddle. Did like Raul Julia tell him to do that? When he started doing, like when he did Adam's Family? It's like, sit on that horse. You better not say anything. You're not saying anything bad about M. Bison, are you? No. So, the most <laughs> incongruous <laughs> casting in the... Ever in the history of movies. For you, the day I killed your father was the most important day of your life. For me, it was a Tuesday. <laughs> That's one of the greatest like film lines of like unironically, one of the great like greatest line reads ever. Raul Julia is amazing. Amazing. Died too young. Way he too did young. die way too young. Yeah, uh, I remember. Yeah, people were shocked. They're bummed. How do you like? He got like just a weird disease, right? Like, no, he gets, oh, he got stomach cancer. Yeah, I mean, it's fucking, it's fucking just, cancer. And then what? He was he did? I think Street Fighter was like his last real movie, wasn't it? They got a stroke. Um, yeah, Street Fighter was his was his last film. Jesus. I hope you appreciate what he gave you. World. It has the most like iconic role too. No, it can't be right. No, like no Kiss no. the Spider Woman probably. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Kiss the Spider Woman. I mean, uh, you know, um, 
Gomez is tequila, tequila Sunrise, that great Mel Gibson right? actioner. I mean, it's really weird because you know those Adams Family movies weren't super well received, but he, for some, in some way, is Gomez. I think people, but I, I think also people like kid. those Adams Family movies. Like I was a kid when I saw those movies, and I like I, I thought he was amazing, and Angelica Houston too. Like the two of them together, were just fantastic. Christopher Lloyd's great in that. I know. Carol Kane. Oh, Carol Kane. Those movies are not. Those movies are okay. Those movies are good. Yeah. Both. Even the second one was good. I always think of him as the attorney in presumed innocent. Yeah. Hmm. We have to do a separate Raw and Julia podcast. Well, just, that'll be what happened. That'll be what we become after this pivotal the list ends. Pivotal Raul Julia. We'll just do the entire Raul. We'll just be a Raul Julia podcast. Yeah. If you want to talk to us about Raul Julia, you can do that. Twitter.com. Or you could, you could add us at, at, film, at Pivotal Film or Film Pivotal. I think you have to do at, at Film Pivotal. Who gives a shit? Honestly, we're just doing this for us now. And whoever is listening to that one episode. <laughs> that guy's just like, I really like this episode. It's a good, it's a good, you know what my favorite part about that episode is? Is that I think when we were reading Oscar nominations, you were just like reading the Oscar nominations. And I was like trying to talk about them. And you were just kind of like, I'm not doing it. I, I'm not talking about this. Let's get to movies. And then we did Beautiful Boy. And you were like, I don't know. I got nothing to say about Beautiful Boy. Um, I fast. I'm gonna be this. I fast forward through parts of Beautiful. Beautiful Boy stinks. Yeah. I mean, it's not a good movie. I'm glad it's forgotten. I'm sad that we keep wasting Timothy Chalamet's years with terrible things like Beautiful Boy and The King. But now he's like stepping away from acting. Good. I mean, Little Women well, no, should be his get, last he's thing. Getting, he's getting Oscar talk for for Little Women as like just a throw in there. Is he doing Dune? Oh, he's right. Dune, yeah. yeah, I think he's taking his first step after Dune. Well, you know what? It's funny. He might be doing that because they've like, already announced for some reason that they're um, putting the Dune sequels in production. Yeah, and he's just like, I'm not fucking doing it. I'm out. Is Dennis Phil and the Wave going to do those? I think so. Oh, that's unfortunate. Yeah, well, because franchises are king now. So you have to have are a they franchise. Are they going to replace Timothy Chalamet with, with Kyle McLaughlin? No, with Sting. Sting's gonna play a different part. Kyle McLaughlin doesn't look that much older. Just put him back in there. Just dye his hair. And they yeah, could just dye his hair. They can make it like an episode of Portlandia. Like Portlandia presents Dune Two. <laughs> Cruise Control. <laughs> um, if you have Dune suggestions for us, you can email us at pivotalfilmpodcast at gmail.com or you can go to pivotalfilm.com, which I have not updated in a long time um, to see lists of the movies that we talked about four weeks ago or the videos we talked four weeks ago. Or to have to subscribe to a podcast, or I'm, I'm shitty right now. You are wrecked. Um, but yeah, until then, uh, go see a movie, drink a beer, and.